I listened to this. Oh, that, this that, that, oh, oh, I'll never forget it. it because I, that, that record was my idea. Tell me about it. Well, I, I'll, try, I'll try not to make it too long. Oh, go ahead. Well, I no, you know, no, Shirley, <laughs> I still play drums today, basically, the way she taught me. I think I've been fortunate. I think I was lucky to play with a, a, a pianist and a vocalist because she was both. I mean, she was both a great piano player and a great singer. Mm. And, and and sometimes, depending on what what attitude I had, sometimes I preferred her as a piano player and sometimes I preferred her as a vocalist. Mm -hmm. But either way, the level was very high. The first time I ever played with professional le level musicians, it, she was in the band. I just didn't know she was there. I was so busy thinking about myself, I didn't even notice who the <laughs> piano player was, right? It's because um, I had just heard about the music, just learned about the music. It, there was a saxophone player named Buck Hill. Yeah. And, uh, and so he gave me these two records, these two Charlie Parker records. Uh, Charlie Parker with strings, it was 78, two 78s. Charlie Parker with strings, uh, which was Just Friends and If I Should Lose You. Mm. And this one had uh, Star Eyes and Au Prevoir. Right? So it, it turned my whole life around, just those two records. Just, you know, that's all I wanted to listen to. Yeah. So finally, I figured out that people actually did play that way live. And then when I figured that out, then I wanted to play with them. And then I started going around trying to sit in and nobody would let me play, <laughs> you know, because it seemed like a joke. You know, it seemed like this kid is going around saying, let me play. And, uh, and he said, I guess I look too young to be serious. Yeah. So after three or four places wouldn't let me play, I, I called Buck back and I said, nobody will, nobody will let me play. So he said, well, you can come down and play with me because he had a Saturday a Saturday afternoon gig, you know, a jam session gig. Yeah. So that's when I went down and sat in on the gig. And the first couple of tunes was okay, I guess. But then the third tune... uh I turned the time around. So, of course, I was heartbroken, you know, that I messed up. And I didn't know any of these guys because they were all much older than me. So, you know, I, I was really near tears. So, I, you know, when I got off the drums, I was walking away, trying to find somewhere where I could, you know, be quiet or something. Hmm. And... uh and somebody grabbed me by the back of my belt and said, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't all your fault. He said, it takes three of us to make a rhythm section. And it turned out that was Shirley Horn. Beautiful. And that's when I realized that she had been playing the piano. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were so focused on yeah, yeah. trying oh, to get it right. Yeah, yeah right. So uh, that was the beginning of it. And of course, uh, for me, she was physically beautiful too. So I mm -hmm. immediately fell in love with this angel, this, you know, jazz angel. Mm -hmm. And so now I was saving up all my lunch money to go see her gigs. And as it turned out, she always had the best drummers in town. So then that's how I began to learn, uh, you know, see drummers live. Mm. And, and uh, that was that was the beginning of it. And then uh, then I was playing a lot of pop gigs. Uh, well, I say pop gigs like like I was playing with, you know, local guys. Yeah, you know, and um, so um, uh, eventually he, she came to one of the gigs, and I mean, came in, walked in the gig, and, and said, "Okay, it's time for you to come and play with me." How much older than you is she? I Just can't only... remember now. I mean, I'm sure the age is is much closer than I thought, but of course, she seemed yeah. like an old woman to me then. Sure. Except sure. a beautiful, beautiful mm -hmm. woman, you know. And uh, so I'm trying to think. Uh, she probably wasn't any more than about seven years older than me. Or yeah. Something like that, seven or eight. But, you know. So anyway, so I started playing with her. Yeah. And then, uh, and just, you know, she, as far as I'm concerned, her style of piano player it was, it was basically always a trio and it was somewhere between at my age then it seemed like somewhere between Oscar Peterson and Ahmed Jamal mm -hmm. but uh, of course she didn't have the facility of either one of those guys mm. but but the character of both bands because you know some people are just into Oscar Peterson or they're into Oscar Peterson more they're into Ahmed Jamal. Say somebody like Benny Green, I mean, he can play like anybody, but you can tell that he sort of leans more towards Oscar Peterson. Oscar Peterson. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. And then other people lean more towards Ahmed Jamal, mm -hmm. but uh, Shirley had both. So in terms of rhythm section playing, uh, that set me up so when I finally did move to New York and everything, I was actually more prepared than I than I thought, mm. because I, I knew, I sort of knew that vocabulary, the comping vocabulary, which ends up being more like Red Garland or something. Mm -hmm. You know, whoops. <laughs> hmm. Aha. It's uh my COVID testing is available. Oh. <laughs> All right. Um, so. Do you, want to, do you want to check it, Billy? No. <laughs> okay. I got it. You know, I got time, you know. They're not okay. in Germany. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so that's the way it was with, 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 with Shirley. Uh, so after I, you know, I began to play with people, you know, I, I and uh, when I looked up, 10 years had gone by, uh, 
20 years had gone by and I I couldn't think of the, the t when I got a chance to help somebody uh, you know I was recording for steeplechase records you know and um, so I, I've recorded over a hundred CDs for steeplechase records yeah right so at a certain point maybe this is about 40 or 50 uh, he asked he was looking for an older style saxophone player and I suggested Buck Hill. Yeah. So we ended up doing, uh, doing you know, three, three CDs or something. And it was pretty successful, especially since Buck had never traveled. He was, he was a postal employee. Wow, right? I didn't know that. So, so they, they made him, they made him like uh, of some point of interest because he is a postman that also plays the saxophone. Mm -hmm. So so we came over and we did the North Sea Jazz Festival and things like that. So so then the guy asked me, um, oh, I said, oh man, if you like Buck, you're really gonna like Shirley. Yeah. And he said, he said, he said, we don't record singers. I said, well, you'll record this one because if you don't, I'm not recording for you anymore. Wow. And he said, okay. And so that's the record you heard. Yeah. I love that record. Me too. That yeah. lazy afternoon version is just incredible. <laughs> right. And what was your, how, how, how were your memories? How are your memories of the, of the recording session? Well, it was, it was easy to remember it because, uh, you know, she didn't want to do it. She basically had retired, you know, except, you know, to work locally, but she wasn't traveling or anything anymore. And she was so good that, you know, if she had a gig, it would be six nights a week for three years. <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, she was, you know, she was that good. I mean, you know, I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't famous, but she was that good. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, so she said, I don't, you know, I don't really want to do that. I said, come on, Shirley, come, you know, brother. So, and you can look at the cover and see that she just threw something over her regular clothes for the, for the, for Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> looks know. like a sheet or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So anyway, I talked her into coming up and then I had a gig with, um, with uh, Jerry Mulligan in Connecticut, and I got stuck in traffic. So when I showed up to the record date in New York, I was an hour late. So, and she said, man, you know, I didn't really want to do this. And you had the nerve to show up late because she was still like my elder. And yeah. she, was, she began to feel sort of like it was sort of disrespectful. And to make matters worse, Buster wasn't there. So I called Buster on the phone. I said, man, what's happening with you? He, he, was throw, he was throwing a party at his house. He had totally forgotten about the whole thing. <laughs> so, then, so then he had to run down there. So in those days, I mean, and the recording cat, I mean, you know, the steeplechase guy, he didn't want to do it. Right? I had to convince him. Sure, yeah, you, you talked him into it. And then, and then convinced Shirley right and mm -hmm. then so Buster gets there 
and both of them are pissed, right? They don't know each, you know, they're just meeting each other at the date and Buster is late, later than me. He, he gets there two hours late, I'm an hour late and the session is only six hours. Hmm. You know, steeplechase isn't the, the most expensive, you know, they don't spend the most money on, on a recording. So now we got four hours to do a date with three people that don't really know each other. So now Shirley's pissed. So she um, looks at Buster. Buster looks at her and he said, do you know I'm old fashioned? He said, yeah, I know it. So and now they're like that. <laughs> and then she didn't even tell him a key. She just stomped it off. And that's yep. what you heard. Wow. So you wow. see why I, do, I will never forget it, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and it's one of his favorite, it's one of Buster's favorite records. Yep. It's one of my favorite records because uh, you can see, now I hadn't played with her, I mean, at all in maybe 15 years or something like mm. that. And you can still see that I remember the way she taught me to play. I mean, you know, you, it sounds like, it sounds sort of like it had been rehearsed. Yeah, yeah. That's the way it was, and mm. that was, and it was basically four hours of first takes or something like that. She just called the tunes, and then yeah, you guys yeah. rolled. Yeah, and, and she didn't even he didn't, for the first tune. I'm old fashioned. She didn't even tell Buster the key. <laughs> that is that is old fashioned. Because she was pissed, you know. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So did the vibe change throughout the session? Well, yeah, after after that, you know, because, I mean, of course, he loved her. Yeah. Yeah, because he'd never met her. He, he didn't know who she was. It was mm -hmm. all my idea. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, he loved, she loved him after that. So the yeah. rest of it was, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so you, again, you, uh, you said uh, the way she taught you to play. Yeah. Uh, you again said it repeatedly. Uh, I, I wanna, I wanna get into that with you. If you can put a finger on what always comes to mind, because Shirley is one of my biggest idols on the on the piano, uh, and just a, a general as a as a musician. She plays so slow tempers, yeah. and I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering how you when you first started playing with her. Because I think that was her thing right from the start, right? To do the, the songs really, really slow sometimes. Well, and, uh, yeah, yeah. How, well, how did you deal with that? Because sometimes it feels like there's some recordings where it feels like it's almost like rubato yeah. slow. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, uh, not to answer your question right away, but I mean, that's how I got interested in playing... Uh, multi-directional or free or whatever you call that. That was mm. my first you know, uh, relationship with, with, with that way of playing, even though I didn't play like Rashid with her. Yeah. But, but, but that's the, uh, that's the feeling she had. That was, that's how it felt. It mm. felt like you could do anything in that space of time, you know, where, because we did make a record at one point, well, this is, you know, years later, where where Elvin was on the record. Yeah. And, and I was on the record. Elvin had a lot of trouble. <laughs> Did you talk to him? 
Well, you can hear it. I was there because mm. they did the record in Shirley's house. Uh huh. Okay. But she was she was so she wanted to have a record date in her house where she cooked. Oh wow! Right. So so and that started because of those gigs she would have where she was at the in the club for for two and three years. So sometimes she would just go there and, and you know and bring food. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, she got to be like she lived there or something, you know. So she got so and she liked playing like that, you know, yeah. having the intermission where the band would go back in the dressing room or the cloak room, whatever, and and eat food. Mm. You know? Very casual, huh? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we did that with Elvin, and I, you know, so on the takes that Elvin was on. I could see that he was having a problem with that because like like we've talked about the drummer being the conductor of an ensemble. Mm. Uh, if anybody wanted to be a conductor, it was Elvin. <laughs> you know, you, when you played with Elvin, you played with Elvin. Sure, yeah. Right? So, and Shirley, you, you had to play with Shirley. I mean, because, yeah. uh, you know, on those temples. Mm. And, and and I guess Elvin wasn't there long enough to 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 pick it up to figure it out because I know he could do that because you know I, I heard him uh, play with Cecil Taylor not only on the records but live 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 yeah right and to say nothing of course Coltrane towards the the end period of their relationship mm. Coltrane was already playing multi-directional you know, yeah. Right, so I knew I knew that uh, Elvin was having problems, but of course, when I learned how to play like that with her, it's because I was really young, like a, like a, ch- a child. Uh, mm. I, you know, I I didn't think of any other way to do it. Mm. You know, I just did what you know, she just played, and I just played, and then as I played with her longer. Then I began to feel it. I began to feel what she felt, mm-hmm. right? That now I have a. I can describe it academically. Yeah. I you know I have an academic uh, opinion of what that is. I can't tell you definitely, but um, she is similar to other people that play like that. The first person that comes to my mind is Ray Charles. Mm. Right, and um, and I think what happens is, well, I'll show you. Okay. Uh, most people, especially now, especially these days, if most people play a ballad, they would they they would think of it in terms of binary. Right, you know, but I think I think Ray Charles and Shirley think of it as tertiary, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh
yeah. except, except with brushes, of course. Yeah. Right. I mean, surely we would do it with brushes, but Ray Charles would, would play it like, um, like. Yeah, but surely we would play with brushes, and and with at a certain experience for a drummer, uh, you know, they both have their own feeling, so mm -hmm. you don't have to play it loud or strict to do that. All you have to do is feel that. Yeah, you because I noticed think. also then when you play sometimes with her these uh, these super slow tempos, you don't sometimes even mark the tempo as such i will mark the bar you just sometimes there's just a, a um a curtain a curtain no a rug of sound yes and yeah. then is the next note and still yeah, yeah. the rug of sound is there yeah or a cushion or whatever you know yeah. but she, she you feel it yeah she, she taught me that. i mean that's what i mean she taught me that yeah you know what i mean i just knew <clears> how to do it i mean it was it was like i was singing or I was playing the piano was because it wasn't like she was saying, or yeah, you know, yeah, she, she didn't cure it. No, just and you know uh, we were or slow dancing, uh huh, you know, mm. like that, which uh, had its points. I mean, it it can be, it could be sensual actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when we started, because I was in love with her. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and then, and of course, the groove thing, she had, you know, Washington, D.C., there is a, 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 a pop style of playing there called Go-Go. I don't know if you heard. Mm -hmm. I heard about it, yeah. Yeah. Well, so she had, you know, that's a Washington D.C. way of doing it. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's um, Duke Ellington, uh, uh, um, uh, Frank West. Mm -hmm. that's, you know, uh, that's uh, uh, Grady Tate. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's the way. That's uh, a Washington D.C. way of of doing things. Mm -hmm. and so. She, you know, the combination of those two things with Shirley, you know. So mm. when you go back, and like I said, I hadn't played with her in 15 years at least. When we And I'm old-fashioned. And that was the first take. And she just counted it off. She didn't give him a, a, a key. And yeah. obviously she didn't give me any tempo. She just counted it off. Yeah. She just said, you know, do you know I'm old-fashioned? You said, yeah, I know it. She said, then go, okay, one. And, and and she does things that that only only person I knew would do would be like Miles, you know Miles Davis. If he when I would we play opposite Miles sometimes at the Vanguard. Yeah. And, and Miles would count off um, uh, uh, milestones with his foot. Right? Yeah, but just one hit. He would just say. <laughs> he, he would just say. Bop. Bop, bop, bop. Wow. You know? That's interesting. Yeah. So, and Shirley, you know, so she had, she had all of that. Yeah. Right? 
So, you know, do you know I'm old-fashioned? Yeah, I know it. And, and, and she always started everything with a very strong one. Mm, right? It's and true, she, yeah. You saw how she counted it off, right? With just triplets. Da-da-da-da-da-da-bop. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That was the count-off. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, that's Miles Davis style. You know. Mm-hmm. It's true. Did she, uh, in in some way, uh, talk about things with you musically? Would she no, go into detail? Or never. I mean, just through playing. She had other other things she would talk about. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that that everything you talk about it eventually relates to music. But she mm -hmm. wasn't one of those people that was going to teach me. You know. You know. I, I think I asked you about uh, the, those instances where you played opposite Miles at the Vanguard. Right. Would Miles sometimes sit in with you guys? No, but she sat in with them. Yeah. So what? Did, so what did they play when when she sat in? Well, any of those standard kinds of things. Uh huh. You know, like uh, because she turned him on to quite a few records. Like yeah, uh, she turned him on to I. I thought about you. Yeah, I fall in love too easily. Mm -hmm. You know, a bunch of those kinds of standards. Yeah, right. Totally. Yeah, yeah. they they wound up they are on her records first, and then they wind up on on Miles' records. I didn't even know that. You know, I didn't even know that, but I know that you know she, she would say, "Oh yeah, I, I showed him that." You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he started playing ballads really slow during that time, you know. Right, right, right. Okay, that gives you a, a thing. Because when I joined the band, Wynton Kelly was the so. But when we got off doing intermission, or wasn't intermission, because uh, Miles would be playing. But we got off. But I remember walking in the back, and it was the first time I'd ever seen Herbie Hancock, who mm. was just standing in the back of the vanguard watching Miles. I don't think I, I don't think I, I don't think he had met Miles even at that point. Uh huh. Right. Wow. So that meant obviously he was checking Winton out, you know. Mm hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And Herbie was, uh, I mean, Shirley's also an uh, uh, interesting influence for for Herbie oh, as well. Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's obvious. Like uh, totally. For, for example, uh, the intro that Herbie plays on My Funny Valentine. Mm hmm. It's, it's so yeah. Shirley. It is so Shirley. Yeah. It's not, it's, I don't even think of it as Herbie. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Did you talk to him about Shirley? Um, well, not so much, except that obviously he already knew. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, because uh, at, at first, a lot of guys thought of me as just a, 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 a vocalist drummer you know that kind of thing so he didn't he didn't want to talk about it too much because you know he wanted you know he wanted a drummer that was a drummer you know <laughs> you know you know like yeah you say oh man you know i'm not here to you know play some light stuff you know like mm. <laughs> yeah and um he was more interested actually in uh, in the my little pop vocabulary at the time, uh huh. Like what? 
Well, you know, I told you I played with some pop people, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, the same time that Jimmy Smith called me, I mean, the same day that Jimmy Smith called me for the gig, I was in San Francisco with Shirley Horn, and uh, my wife at, at that time uh, gave, gave uh, Jimmy Smith my hotel number. But the same day, James Brown called me. Ooh. And so I said, she just told him, you know, that I wasn't home, that I was in San Francisco. Wow. And because she knew that that uh, what my choice would be i mean i i would i didn't i didn't have to think about it i never have to think about it ever you know because sometimes i talk to students they say man you turned down james brown mm -hmm. i said not only did i turn him down then i would turn him down now can you explain well uh I don't know about you, but I mean, if somebody called you to play with Justin Bieber and you got a chance, <laughs> to play, you know, or you, or you, if, you know, and you had a chance to play with a Jan Gabarek or something, you know, I mean, <laughs> you felt you weren't the, the right guy for the, for the job. Well, I, I learned the vocabulary. Remember I said, Shirley came and got me out of the pop gig. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it takes a certain amount of knowledge to be able to play pop drumming. I mean, that's, that's no easy thing either. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you know, and, and it has its own tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has the same tradition of, 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 of jazz. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. Mm. You know, uh, 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 John Coltrane, they asked... Uh, the powers that be or whoever, you know, interviewers or whatever, they asked John, he said, you know, um, what are you trying to do with your music? You know, and I guess it was during the time of the revolution or whatever, you know, so-called Afro-American revolution, which is actually beginning to sound like that back to that today. Yeah. And so I guess they expected him to say, you know, I want my music to be, you know, black power or something like that and he didn't say any of that he he said uh he said i simply want to be a force for good that's right? beautiful yeah and, and uh and it was like maybe you don't understand what we mean mm. you know it was like so he said well let's he said um he said well let's ask you another question tell us about classical music and he said please forgive me if I'm wrong, or how did he put it? Uh, please forgive me if I'm, yeah, I think, please forgive me if I'm wrong. He said, but every culture on the planet has a classical music. Hmm. To which culture are you referring? Right? Well, yeah. So, so what I took from that <clears throat> is that, um, that if every culture on the planet throughout history has a classical music, they also have a folk music. And that for my way of looking at it, the, the classical music is simply an evolution of the folk music. Uh-huh. That, that's my opinion anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, 
that's what happened in the United States in terms of of now we call the folk music or the dance music, you call it pop music or hip hop or whatever you call what it once it gets into marketing and big yeah. business and all of that, they've got all these different names to make some something that's very natural seem to be special or something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, I, so when this thing first starts, it starts before there's like any kind of recording instrument, 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 instrumentation. Mm. Right. So it all starts at the same time. Somehow, as the marketing gets more sophisticated, then they they divide the they, they genres. Divide, yeah, yeah, yeah. They divide the dance music from the classical, you know, from the yeah. from the meditative listening music to the physical activity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which, which you know, which seems like it's been that way all the time, you know, in any culture that you that you you know, even in Africa, you know, you know, uh, people dance all the time. But mm-hmm. then you've got the most sophisticated rhythmic things that I can think of. It's still, uh, it's a lot of of rhythms that are uh, that are secret. I mean, I mean, I mean that are so complex. You, you, nobody would. We haven't figured it out yet. Mm. But still, people are dancing to it. Well, yeah, it's just not natural for them. Yeah. yeah. Right. Just when you said that, uh, I had to think about the, the beginning from crossings. Somehow it came yeah. to my mind. Yeah. Well, so uh, well, anyway, that's, that's the way it was with with me and Shirley. But it was also the way it was with me and Herbie, you know, mm. I mean, Herbie liked me because of of some of what he liked about me was my knowledge of the pop vocabulary of the time of the day. Right. And I, and I had no idea that he was simply emulating what I had gone through because Jimmy Smith chose me for the same reason. And then when I left Jimmy Smith, I went with Wes Montgomery who chose me for the same reason. Mm. And when Wes died, I went with Eddie Harris, the saxophone player, mm-hmm. and he chose me for the same reason. Mm. Right. So then you have you know your friends like uh, I, I you know I got a friend uh, you know you know Kenny Washington, and yeah, and, he, and he, you know he said, man, I thought you were an extension of Philly Joe Jones, you know you know, and I'm saying, well, no, not not exactly, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and then he'd hear me play with. Uh, we still talk about it sometimes. He'd hear me playing with um, uh, James Newton or Anthony Davis, or you know, uh, Roscoe Mitchell. He said, "Man, yeah. why did you play with those guys?" Yeah, I, I say, "Well, man, how did you know I played with those guys?" He said, "Because I, I bought the record." I said, "Well, then why did you buy the record?" He said, "Because you were on it." You know. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, but that, but that was you know, no man, you're supposed to, you, you know, you 
I'm sure she said, you were my choice to be the next guy to play like Billy Joe Jones. Uh-huh. You know? And I said, no, not exactly. That's not, uh, you know, a, a little closer might have been uh, Elvin Jones or mm-hmm. Billy Higgins or something, but yeah. well, in, in reality, it's not even that, you know? Well, you know, you heard me play something. <laughs> Yeah, maybe you can talk about your heroes uh, when during that time when you came up with with uh, Shirley. Maybe who who were your heroes? Well, the, the major innovators are the are the major innovators for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they they they've uh, they've come up they've they've found something that's so natural that it's innovative right or or they or they or they've been able to get in touch with say some other culture mm. and brought it into their thing so the guy for me is still the same guy is max roach you know what when we uh, when we hung out, you um, we somehow we touched on teaching, and you said, "Yeah, I don't know what you guys are teaching, but I'm still trying to teach them about Max Roach." Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I had to do a, a Zoom conference that evidently was seen all over the planet. See, I'm not a very articulate speaker. I don't know. I, well, I think so. <laughs> we don't have to, you know, I, I know, I know that to be true. But so, but I had to talk for two hours on the evolution of contemporary drumming. Right. And, you know, I know people responded from Turkey and stuff like uh-huh. that. Right. Uh, but Max Roach somehow grew up at a time like he comes onto the bebop scene around 1942 uh when he was about 19 years old Hmm. right and uh somehow around 1944 i think it was he how somehow ran into ravi shankar Right, wow. right, and uh, and of course, if you go to any kind of academic school in the United States in those days, uh, you're going to study European music. So it goes without saying, you know, because there was just because of the way this country socially is set up, uh, the the a lot of the times they think of the epitome of almost anything as European. Mm-hmm. So that naturally, in other words, like we've got a hall in every, not even every state in the country, but in every city in every state in the country for European music, you know, hmm. Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center. Uh, yeah. you know, I mean, every city in the United States. Yeah, true, yeah. Right. So. So anyway, so. Um, Max obviously had studied some European classical music, and now 
he's uh, you know somehow gotten in touch with Ravi Shankar and his you know toddler, mm-hmm. and it's just like he must have been about twenty one years old then. So Max Roach was his own Tony Williams at that <laughs> time, and then as he gets more into Charlie Parker and those guys, and this is during the time when the swing era has changed from the swing era to rhythm and blues. So there's swing era, rhythm and blues, bebop. It's not mm-hmm. swing era, bebop. Mm-hmm. It's swing era, rhythm and blues and bebop because the rhythm and blues is going to be the dance music. It's yeah. always going to be, I, I suspect that dance music will always be there. I mean, will always be the basis or folk music will always be the basis of every of every culture. Mm. That you makes know? sense. And so so the strength of your music or the strength of your culture is going to be the folk music. Mm. Right? I just think that the business people or marketing people find a way to take advantage of that. I mean, you know, to I mean for them that is the reality. The reality is the folk music. It's the most natural. I mean, it's the the thing that people do. It's um, it, I think because it deals with the sensual taste. In other mm-hmm. words, something that you can feel. Yeah, I mean, you can. You can. It makes you move. Yeah, right. And and you can feel it psychologically. You know, um, so you 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 can be invested in the music without having to study it. Yeah. I mean, and in certain ways, you understand the music as well as the musician because you can feel it. Yeah. Right? So in other words, so if it gets a little too sophisticated, then, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not necessary, you know, for, for their feeling. Mm. Yeah. You know? But that's just my suspicion. I'm I'm just one person. You know, I it, I don't have to be right. You know, mm. but that's that's the way I look at it. So anyway, so Max it gets the, the end of the swing era, and is basically as a teenager or kid is invested invested in the rhythm and blues. You know, Louis Jordan. Mm. Uh, who else? The one that guy that Coltrane played with. Um, oh, ah, I can't think of the name. This guy is supposed to have so much facility on the instrument. Uh, Who did Coltrane play with? I mean, he played with Dizzy, and he played with. Uh, I'm saying before Dizzy. This is before Dizzy. Uh, he's a rhythm and blues guy, alto player, mm. with a, a, a phenomenal amount of, of, of facility. And, and uh, uh, Benny Golson played with this guy too. Uh, well, anyway, him, you know. Yeah. So, 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 so Max, you know, and Philly Joe, and uh, Johnny Griffin also played with these guys, you know. Mm. So it was swing era, rhythm and blues, bebop, right? So, but when the beboppers come on the scene. You know Charlie Parker and all of that, in terms of Max Roach, uh, 
they began to investigate the Afro-Caribbean, yeah. you know, the Cuba and all of that. And that for me, for a drummer, is beginning to investigate the inevitability of straight apes. Hmm. Because, you know, because there's some things, uh, interviews of, of uh, Dizzy that says one of the things about the Afro-Caribbean that we didn't have in swing era or rhythm and blues is um, they had the ostinato bass pattern. Right. There was no ostinato bass pattern in swing era or rhythm and blues. Mm. I mean, sort of, as sort of beginning in rhythm and blues, but the ostinato bass, bass pattern seems to come to, into fruition with the Afro-Caribbean stuff. Yeah. Right. So Max goes through all of those phases where mm -hmm. if you're a young kid today, you don't think of Max as being fluent in those phases. Mm. Well, not only is he fluent in it, I mean, he's at the beginning of that, mm. of how translating that into American music. Wow. Yeah, it's true. So that's why, I mean, so if he's, if he's got uh, straight A's, and uh, Indian music, Tabla, too, where he's basically by 1947, well, maybe 51, where, where drummers are today. Mm -hmm. Period. I'm talking about Chris Dave, uh, Marcus Gilmore, Kendrick Scott, yeah. uh, uh, Bill Stewart, uh, uh, you know, all of those guys. Mm. Max was, Max had covered all of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, basically waiting for, you know, for the harmony, you know, for the thing to congeal like the European, you know, the 20th century harmony or whatever to hook up with that, that rhythm. When was the first time you heard Un Poco Loco? Well, Un Poco Loco is 1951. That's why I chose 51. Because I was going yeah. That's Max Roach. But yeah. he also, that's binary though, right? Mm. Straight apes, basically. Yeah. You know, un poco loco is, you know, is Spanish for a little, cr a little crazy. Mm -hmm. But in 1947, Max plays an eight bar break with Charlie Parker. That's the same, same academic procedure as un poco loco. Mm. There's a tune called Clack the Vita Sting, where, mm -hmm. where it's an intro, uh, an eight-bar intro, and Max plays an eight-bar response to that intro, which eight bars is four sections of five beats and four sections of three beats in eight mm. bars. And of course, Un Poco Loco is two sections of five beats and one section of six beats. Mm. Right, it's incredible. That's, yeah, that's that's Max Roach to me. Yeah, innovator. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, like uh, you know, you know, like those two Italian guys whose names I can't think of right now, the Sist Sistine Chapel, and uh, Da Vinci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Mm -hmm. 
And it's another one. There's another Italian cat like that too. You know. Uh, it'll come back. Yeah. It'll right. Come back. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not articulate, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, I sense these things, but I, I didn't think academically where I wrote it down, but. Mm. But I, I feel these things. I think. Yeah. So anyway, that's he, why I say, that's why I pick Max Roach. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when I listen to you play on all these records, and and uh, also when, I mean, I felt it even more so when, uh, felt it physically when when we got the chance to play, is. Um, There's a clarity. There's such a sense of clarity with all the things you're doing. Uh, if you're, you know, you're playing the tune, and sometimes then uh, you're doing something to to us, or doing something to the music, doing something to the to the beat, for a certain amount of time, and it's so clear what you're doing. I mean, it's fascinating what you're doing, but it's so clear that. Uh, it makes everything else shine in another light, but it's also so uh, clear to work with. You know what I mean? You give well, players. I know what you're saying I'm not so sure you're accurate in terms of my ability. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I felt it when when I, uh, when we played, and also when I when I was listening to you. I mean. You introduce new new shades, new new ways of looking at the beat for uh, maybe a section, and then the next section comes. You know, it's it's not as academic as it sounds right now, but I just I'm amazed at the of the clarity. You know, well, the precision nice, and the clarity. It's a nice compliment. I'm not so sure it's true, but <laughs> <laughs> it's true to me. Uh, and I was wondering if uh, this is something that. Um, came natural to you uh, or that you aspired to um, or uh, something that you really had to work on? Because when I listen to you, even from way back, it seems it's always there. Well, um, in a funny kind of way, I mean, I didn't emulate Max, but I played, I think that Bird and Diz by uh, being influenced by the Afro-Caribbean brought the inevitability of straight apes to, to, to the world. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, to the point where that's basically all we've been dealing with since. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, because it's to the point where the average young kid today doesn't even know the tertiary vocabulary. Mm -hmm. You know, not unless they somehow invest, you know, or, or they got turned on to jazz. Yeah, the world's supposed to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, so I was lucky to, you know, being in Washington, D.C., uh, to have some of that pop vocabulary at a time when I was playing with Shirley Horn. So mm -hmm. that's those two things for me, right? I mean, to to see the finer points of both things. Yeah. Right. So I, that that might be the answer to what you're saying. I mean, I, if if you grow up and you you know the basic vocabulary 
of James Brown's drummers or anybody, uh, Genesis. Or, uh, and another thing that happened for me that I think I was very lucky for was there was a guitar player in Washington, D.C. named Charlie Bird. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, he had his own nightclub. I mean, he was famous. He traveled around the world. And when he went to Brazil, his bass player discovered this new music called La Bossa Nova. And they brought it back and they started playing it first. And I was there when uh, when Charlie Bird turned Stan Getz on to it. Yeah. Right? And And so I got a chance to play with some of those Brazilian guys because to repay Charlie Bird, they would come and play at his club. So since I was sort of a young, up-and-coming, improvising musician that could play in straight eighths at a time when most of the improvising guys were playing tertiary, yeah, I got the call to play with these Brazilian guys. Mm. So I got a chance to play with Antonio Carlos Jobim and uh you know joao gilberto and those and so that was another way of looking at uh at uh straight apes mm-hmm. right? and and that's how i could recognize it in tony yeah right i you know i mean uh but it was obvious to me that tony had been checking out the uh that afro-caribbean and you know Afro-Brazilian music, and so it wasn't like. I mean, I you know I had such a great example of it. Hmm. You know. Did Joao uh, Gilberto give you any notes while playing? You mean uh, written music? No, no. I I mean like uh, uh, advice or, or oh, yeah, anything oh, to yeah, do. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I I talked to I talked to Steve Swallow. Mm-hmm. And he told me that um, uh, Joao Gilberto taught him only one thing because they, they I think they played uh, one night at the Vanguard. Uh-huh. And the only thing that Joao Gilberto told him before they went on stage was, no, the doom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah. Well, well he, he basically told me the same thing, but in a, a different way. Like because how- uh, uh you know he was from Bahia, so that's the you know the largest african uh area of Brazil and somehow he grew up there so yeah. so he had played this rhythm on the guitar that we now call the partido alto mm. you know you know yeah you know uh, mm. uh, Yeah. So, so, uh, but he didn't have a name for it, or at least he didn't, couldn't tell me a name for it. But, but I played it because he played it. You know, that's the way he played it. And so, so when I would play it like he played it, I, I... oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
He said, you know, don't play it like that. He said, play like the rain. Ooh. Right. So, wow, I, I want to see a video of, of that moment and then see your face like, <laughs> yeah. like the rain. Yeah, but you know, he said, oh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, how beautiful. What did you do? Huh? Well, what did you do? Well, then it just means uh, something like what Matt Miles told me when I was playing on, on the corner. But uh, it just means very, very the Partito Alto. You know, just vary it. So, I mean, now guys do a bunch of different things, but you can, you know. So I, so I was really lucky. I mean, I mean, you know, to be from Washington D.C. When you think everybody gets everything from Detroit, Philadelphia, or or New York, I mean, mm. I got all that in Washington D.C. Plus Shirley Horn, plus yeah. the pop music. Wow. So maybe that answers some questions. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't. But I'm not the only drummer from there. Yeah. You know, so the last drummer that Miles had, Ricky Wellman was from Washington, D.C. He had a and, special feel. Yeah, the I really like his feel. He, yeah. he was go-go. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he was with a go-go band when Miles heard him. What's the name of that band? I think I know, I've, I've heard of that band. Chuck, Chuck Brown, I think it was called. It's, huh. I don't know his name. But just, if you look it up on the computer, it's just this go-go, like mm. hip-hop go-go, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he got, you know, a lot of drummers. I mean, there's just some good drummers come from. You had a lot of good drummers in Washington D.C. Mm. I was just really lucky, and and we got a chance to play with people like, you know, Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, mm. uh, Patty Labelle, Smokey Robinson. Um, uh, let me see who else. I mean, it was a bunch, you know. It was just because we had a theater there that uh, these acts would come through and uh, um, uh, uh, Curtis Mayfield with the impressions mm -hmm. of, of Jerry Butler and us, you know, it was a, so it was, a, it was a lot going on. Wow. Yeah. And especially for me, I mean, with the, with the drums. And mm. I, you know, and I didn't have to be, you know, I didn't have to be very good. I I could I could see I could hear, mm -hmm. you know, the temptations. Of, you know, mm. you know. And most of those people, I I got a chance to play with. It's incredible, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. I mean that that is a lot of different um, situations where you're in a position of learning somebody else's music, and that is something that I was. Uh, interested in and uh, that what is the first i mean how should i put it <clears throat> when we played you were learning the music you were reading a bit but mostly you were listening to it right. and we were playing it over and over again right. uh, and you were getting 
you were you were acquainting yourself with with the material right i'm wondering what what happens inside of you what is the thing that you're uh, trying to connect to first or uh, <laughs> you know yeah yeah well you know a lot of the answers i'm giving you today uh is just what the first thing that comes to my mind Perfect. And I, I don't know what I was thinking about then, mm -hmm. but just hearing the, hearing the question now, um, there are certain things that traditionally people will ask ask of of a drummer that everybody, you know, sort of, you know, it's tradition, you know, in other words. So they, like I tell you. Uh, one time I got to Coltrane's gig before Elvin got there. So I was talking to Coltrane, you know, talking about Elvin. And he said, you know, Billy, the, the first thing, the, how did he put it? The first, you know, basically he sort of said the first thing that, the thing that impressed me most when I, this is the, his words, the thing that impressed me most when I first heard Elvin play was his professionalism and i thought mm. what you know you know not his uh his uh his fire and his energy or his um his polyrhythmic uh expertise mm. or, no he said no he said um his his professionalism so i'm scratching my head and mm -hmm. he said uh, you know his ability to dot the i's and cross the t's Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's a term I've heard, I had heard from other musicians, right? Like, uh, how do you, uh, you know, how do you punctuate a sentence? Like, how do you, a period, a question mark, uh, mm. an exclamation mark, uh, you know, a comma, mm. you know, right? And, um, and, and most drummers, you know, you, you think of that, you know, that's, that's supposed to be the job of a drummer, mm. you know, again, going back to a conductor, you know, whatever, Yeah. you know, things that people, you know, you know, that puts things in order. Mm. So, of course, that's the, so that would be the first thing I would think of uh, when I'm hearing a piece of music. You know, I, I, I guess I could understand that some people look at music and they look at the music first, like, but the thing is, this, what does that mean? Absolutely, yeah. You know, because it's just symbols and signs yeah, for something. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the notes. So, you know, so you wonder, well, what does, what does this guy have in mind? Is he even writing down what he actually thought yeah you know and what is it what is he what does he think about I me mean, what what did he want to happen what is it that he wants to happen you know mm -hmm. i've been in situations where a guy said well man that's not right i, I want you to do this isn't it and the guy's response he said well that's not what is on the paper yeah well then my thing is was that's not what's on the paper then don't play what's on the paper yeah Let's play what the guy had in mind. Sure. 
So I guess that's the answer. That's I, it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I I could hear I could listen when we when we uh, played a song all over again. I could hear you uh, waiting or or uh, reaching for those exclamation points in tunes or kind of the okay this is this is one bit and this is the next bit yeah and if i if i get this this will bring me to that section right and but the, the thing is when we were playing the song also uh, then for for real uh, to to the tape when we recorded um those exclamation points would come every time in a different way but they would come every time from you and that way you were helping us to um to play the song you know what i mean because i hope uh, so. what happens <laughs> what happens a lot is you know you people people play the song they get they get uh rid of the the melody they get it out of the way and then they play changes you mm. know what i mean yeah and then forget about the tune right you were reminding us of of the tune the whole time oh <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it's it's hard to you know i i haven't had my if i have any regrets at all is i've never had a chance to study music as much as i would like mm. who would have uh, what if you um like to study with well um was well, it's, it's the kinds of music like um like uh say a guy like marcus gilmore you know with his own money has gone to africa and studied has gone to brazil and studied and 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 he just got finished doing uh, a two-year uh thing with uh with, with uh the Indian guy, the most popular Indian tabla player now, you know, the guy that played Zakia Hussein. Yeah, he had two years of that. That wow. uh, I guess a lot of people haven't even know, don't even know that. I mean, there's <laughs> videos of him in India performing with Zakir, just the two yeah. of them, mm. right? So that's India, Africa, and Brazil, mm. and he's just a young cat. So mm -hmm. I, mean, I just showed you how smart he was and to say nothing about his grandfather, right? Sure. And, you know, so I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a lot of wisdom. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like they say, uh, uh, Bach, his, his father, you know, like his whole family had a history mm -hmm. of, of uh, you know, brother and, and you know, uncles or whatever you know but yeah. billy i mean billy you studied music in a in another way well some you know. people do study that and you studied with the masters you know well i just wanted more academic stuff you know like there's certain people like there's a drummer uh that plays with herbie hancock a lot named vinnie kaliuta yeah, and, and he was talking about his uh, his upbringing, you know, and how he got interested in the drums. And he's talking about some of his studio work, and he'd say, "Man, you know, in those days, I was a good sight reader." Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I I never was that, 
Mm. You know, I never had time for that. You know, first of all, I played with so many different bands and, uh, but uh, I never had time to, well, I guess I don't do that even in English. Uh, so I guess I just never got a chance to study as much of anything as I would have liked, you know, uh, academically. But I, but I have had a certain amount of experience with a lot of different things. For sure, for sure. Not just music, you know, but, uh, yeah. you know, from traveling to so many different cultures. Yeah. yeah. I, w I want to talk to you about M1 Dishi and <laughs> an experience with, with Herbie, mm -hmm. um, especially actually the, the rehearsal process of uh, what oh, was it like when, when, really when Herbie, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at some point you must have learned the songs that are on the record. Well, well, How... but that, that was almost like pop music. Uh, when Herbie, <laughs> when he first, when we first got together, when he called me to make, make the very first rehearsal, which turned out basically to be the only rehearsal. Um, it was just me. I went to his, his house, I mean, his apartment mm -hmm. and he, and he, so he played maiden voice. I said, oh yeah, I know that, you know, yeah. I had a hurricane. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. In other words, I already knew everything. I mean, I knew songs that he played with, with Donald Byrd, mm. you know, I mean, I just knew, I mean, I, I loved his playing from the beginning mm -hmm. so much that, you know, I just knew the way he played, I watched, uh, and there's another thing about him is remember his, the first record he ever made was a hit record. You know, he, he wrote Watermelon Man. Yeah. You know, that was already, so he's already, uh, his uh, way of, of thinking about music was, was uh, already influenced by the Afro-Caribbean. Mm. Um, but but as it related to the community in which he grew up, right. So so you can't even say it was the Afro Caribbean as related to uh, uh, American. It was uh, it was because because I grew up the same way. I mean I grew up with guys uh, on the on the on a truck sometimes with a with a, a horse. A, a, carrying a cart, right, and saying, you know, watermelon, you know, watermelon, water, you know, yeah, and, you know, people would go and buy the watermelon, and mm -hmm. guys would do the same thing with, with, with chickens, mm -hmm. right, you know, and so Herbie's from Chicago, I'm from Washington, D.C., but we both experienced that exact same thing, I knew exactly what, I mean, you know, I, I experienced it the same way he did, mm -hmm. except he, 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 some way found a way to write it down. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so, um, uh, what can I say? Uh, so that's one thing. Hmm. The, the next thing was he obviously was already interested in the evolution of, of dance music. Hmm. You know, I mean, more than I even realized. Hmm. Right, you know, but but again, that was another relationship we had. In other words, 
when I was talking about all the people that hired me for my basic uh, pop vocabulary, he was one of those guys, except, of course, my pop vocabulary with each band was sort of diminishing. In other words, you'd think it would be going up, but it was actually going down because what I wanted to learn was more of the tertiary way of playing. I want to learn more about Papa Joe Jones and, mm -hmm. and Kenny Clark and that's that's what I was trying to what what in the world is is that mm. you know they would tell you stories like he said you know the swing ride beat he said Kenny Clark owned that beat mm -hmm. I mean the people that told you that uh they weren't they weren't exaggerating mm -hmm. they, they, they did. you know you say well man if Kenny Clark owned that beat well what about Art Blakey what about Max Roach no Kenny Clark owned yeah. that beat Right. So now nobody's talking about Kenny Clark, but I'm thinking, well, maybe I better go <laughs> and see <laughs> see yeah. what that is. And I had a chance to meet him too. I was lucky. Wow. I had a chance to meet him. Mm -hmm. What kind of questions did you ask him? Well, I didn't ask him anything. I, I, I just looked at him and started smiling. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what to say to him, uh, but he did take me over to a, a desk in Paris and played some rudiments on the desk for me, you know. Wow. You know. How was that for you? Oh, it was like a dream come true. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm trying to think of, well, what is it, who was it? Uh, Richter, the Russian piano player. Mm -hmm. And what's the other guy? Uh, Richter, what's the other, the Russian guy's name? Uh, uh, Horowitz. Horowitz, of course. Richter and and another guy too, Rubinstein. Uh, yes, those three. Mm. What would you do if yeah. one of those grabbed you by the arm and say, "You know, let's sit down at the piano and, you know, and if they play first, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you just sit there and listen, take it in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, but let's go back to that rehearsal with just you and oh, Herbie. Oh, oh, oh right, right. So, okay. So, so we went through about, I don't know, toys? At, least, at least 10 tunes. Yeah. At least, at least maybe more, maybe 20. Mm -hmm. And I knew them all. Yeah. I mean, I thought I knew them until we got on the gig. I knew the melodies. Mm-hmm. But... As soon as we went into the improvisation, the lights went out, mm. you know, and I, I and that's, that's the first time that had ever happened. I mean, now was that still was that still with Joe Henderson and Garnett Brown? No, yes, yes, yes. Uh, that particular gig, oh, yeah, but, but Joe Henderson uh, left right after that. But you 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 played one one gig with Herbie and Joe Henderson in that. Configuration. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, I would have loved to hear that. Yeah. Well, it was it was scary. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, because they all knew that. And yeah. they all and, and they all I mean they knew what happens after the melody. Mm -hmm. You know. And uh you know that that that's another way of looking at uh Looking at improvisation, I mean, it's another way of uh, of uh, examining, for want of a better word, advanced harmonic concepts. 
Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of that is advanced European harmonic concepts, mm -hmm. right? It's not all European, but it's advanced. But and mm -hmm. that's enough that makes you more interested in say Asian harmonic concepts, or, or you know, you know, because you look at even you know, uh, uh, Joe Beam, you can say, well, but this is sort of Chopin and. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Know, you know, but there are some other things that it's not that. You know, mm. or they'll say, well, um, Duke Ellington uh, had some French influences, but 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 then there's there's statements that I've heard that they say that Ravel and uh, Duke Ellington were arriving at some of the same conclusions simultaneously. Mm-hmm at the same time, you know, mm -hmm. right? And he's, you know, so anyway, but Herbie, you know, they were playing another way. I mean, the records are one thing. Yeah. I mean, you can hear it, you know, when you're just sitting there, you don't have to play. You can see that this was this and this is this, but when you have to play and and that's happening at that time, he's, the next time, I didn't hear anything else until we played the melody, take the song out. <laughs> You know, so, so what that, were you doing in the middle? God only knows. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> Holding on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and but you know, you begin to you begin to hear it, you know, you just begin. Mm -hmm. I can't say anything else, but that you can hear it, that, that you can relate it to to what you already know. Yeah. You know. There's a there's a recording of uh, <clears throat> um, of you guys from the Netherlands. I think from what is it, seventy one or seventy two, playing toys with a very long uh, bass solo intro. Well, it was always a very long bass. Yeah, <laughs> and then Herbie, but Herbie was playing acoustic. Right. Oh yeah. Man. And you I take it I, out I, there. I don't think it was the Netherlands. I think it was France actually. Uh, nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. That's one of my favorite Herbie solos. And it's incredible. It's 20 minutes or something. And wow. It, and, 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 and you got a lot of favorite Herbie Hancock solos, but that's one of my very favorites. Yes. And yes. the fact that I was actually playing on it. Mm -hmm. but, but one thing I learned about that solo, because, you know, that's a bootleg. That's not even a. Uh, thing and I realized I could hear some of the odd groupings that he and Ron and Tony could play mm -hmm. that it was still escaping me mm -hmm. you know I mean I didn't even remember that you mean back then yeah yeah I, you know I, I didn't even realize until I heard the record that uh that he could still play some things that I still wasn't familiar with rhythmically, mm. right? And and then I when I after, then I was disappointed for a minute that I, I could still hear that he was still far ahead of me, mm. even even though uh, even though you know I'm you know because I, I only heard about you know, heard the record about ten years ago, so yeah. by that time I thought I had grown a little bit. <laughs> and I said, oh man, I still didn't hear, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. No. But, uh, 
No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, Herbie's he's a brilliant, brilliant man, but not only uh, harmonically, but rhythmically. Mm. Um, and 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 he and Tony. I mean, the same thing with Tony uh, is because uh, Tony sort of came up in a in a, a academic setting, you know. Uh, uh, you know, a, a town that has a lot of uh, academic activity. Boston. Yeah. Mm. You know, and uh, so, I mean, Alan Dawson uh, was, his, one, you know, one of his main teachers, and uh, Dawson came up with a rudimental book that, as far as I'm concerned, is unsurpassed because mm. most rudimental books are based on written to be played with a conductor. You know, you know, you play with an ensemble, you know, and there's a guy conducting the ensemble, hmm. right? And, and uh, uh, Dawson's book is the only one where, where, where you use the bass drum. So that makes you the conductor. So you, and, but it's just the basic rudiments, the drum rudiments, but by having to play the bass drum with it, puts that in a certain kind of order that I thought was a genius. Mm. On the other hand, I know when I saw Pete LaRocca for the first time, which is when Charles, uh, Charlie Bird turned Stan Getz onto the bossa nova, uh, Pete LaRocca was playing with Stan. Mm. And, uh, uh, he was telling me he was going to move to Boston because he was, you know, he had some kind of gig up there with the Herb Pomeroy, with the Herb Pomeroy big band. And so, and Tony was still living up there then, you know. And so Pete LaRocca was originally, originally a timbali player, right? So there Tony got a chance to see firsthand uh, uh, the inevitability of straight apes yeah. beyond just the pop music of the day. Right? Yeah. To, you know, to see the authentic, authenticity of it. You know, mm. you know, for me, if it's authentic, that means it has a, it has a reason. You know, you, you play it, for, you know, for, for a reason. I mean, it has a musical purpose yeah that you makes know. sense yeah and so he got that he had that uh, among everything else that he had he got that the same way i got the brazilian thing in washington dc mm. and uh i don't I, I get what i'm talking and talking about that <laughs> yeah. me too actually but we oh, got oh, we got oh, there oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so anyway uh so those are two kind of authenticities that uh, Tony and Herbie have. Uh, uh, Herbie, you know, studied, he played with the Chicago Symphony when he was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. Playing right. Mozart, yeah. It was, it was that and something else too, though. I can't mm -hmm. think exactly what it was. But he said that it was some, some white kid that showed him jazz changes as late as when he was 17 years old or something. Yeah. So most of his understanding in that regard 
was European. Right. That's that's something actually I, I read the other day. I was I was listening, I was playing Legos with my son, and we were listening to Speak Like a Child. And at some point, I started reading the the um, uh, the booklet again. I've been reading it a lot of times, obviously, but yeah, I hadn't read read it in a, uh, in a long time. So it, I was reading the liner notes, and Herbie said, "Yeah, I in the in the past years, I've been working hard." on um, getting my swing feel, uh, you know, in shape. Uh, and I think this is my most swinging record of all of them that I did. Now, we talked about taking off. That record swings like hell, you know? Well, I mean, what are you going to do? You had, I mean, with, uh, Butch Warren was the other guy that I went to high school with. Oh, wow. Wow. Right, you put, put that. And Higgins. Sure. But right. still, I mean, Herbie, Herbie's swinging. But I, I, I was wondering if, if he ever told told you anything about how we worked on it. No, but he, he, I, I get a general idea. I mean, he just did the he just did the European thing uh, uh, first, hmm. right? I mean, for me if, if, to have to describe it in pedestrian terms is Herbie can resolve some of the most difficult European or complex complexities, European phrases. He can resolve that with some of the funkiest blues patterns and vice versa. So you have to know those. And then when you add whatever, um, Afro-Caribbean stuff that he knows that at my generation, his generation and Tony's generation, my generation is the same generation. So that means we're second generation in acknowledging uh, the Afro-Caribbean influence on so-called jazz music because, Mm. you know, when Bird and Diz and those guys started doing it, it was sort of like straight A's in the A section a spring uh, swing the bridge or yeah. swing the a sections and latin the bridge yeah you know and like that uh, but you know at a certain point we get it to now it's almost everything was always all the way straight eighth all the way to through all these different variations of whatever the afro-caribbean is and then americans have the has the audacity to try to even mix up the, the, the cultures, the Brazilian culture with the Cuban culture, mm. right? Which, of course, is uh, almost disrespectful as that is, sends you more back into Africa, you know? Mm-hmm. Because that's where it all comes from originally anyway. Sure, yeah. So as much as you're saying, well, I did this, but this, you know, this is clave here, but then I did this with it, I mean, say, well, you can't do that. Well, if you say that, if you say that to the Cubans, they say, no, you can't do that. Or mm-hmm. if you go to Brazil. It's sacred they, stuff. They, they say, yeah, you do it there. You say, no, you can't do that. It's mm-hmm. only the Americans who will say, well, uh, I like this with this, you know. Yeah, because that's what America is also, you know. <laughs> right. It's this with this, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So but did we I finish wanted... Herbie? We, <laughs> we never even finished it then. But that's what I that's what I one of the things I learned. What I like what I like about him, um mm -hmm. what I love about him yeah. is that, that he's so fluent uh in, in that re regard of uh playing uh uh Afro American music blues with European and mixing the Afro Caribbean with that. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> yeah, I was wondering in the in the evolution of M1 Dishi, um um pieces like on crossing I mean um there's there's stuff where I love the the flexibility of the group and there where there's um collective improvisations and and uh astonishing multi-directional stuff going on and then you're all you you're back together for just a, that tiny written stuff you know and then you go into a groove and then it's free again and then there's just another little cue that but it, it must have been well rehearsed at some point that those little cues i mean you know well, what i mean and i know exactly what you mean so uh, i i'm curious about those you know well you're thinking of it as a rehearsed arrangement but what you're leaving out is that in those days if you were a member of of an ensemble you worked uh more than 30 weeks out of the year yeah and and most of those were six nights a week so you got a chance to play it over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over. that's that's why when you you hear uh, a charlie parker record or a sonny rollins record or whatever why they're still playing them today mm. when it was like you know 1956 or 1947 mm. or 1962 you know it, we're still hearing those i mean i mean i'm i'm pretty sure that certain things that you've heard when you were 21 that I heard when I was 21. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right. When right. you just said 62, were you thinking of the bridge? Huh? <laughs> when you? Well, I, one of the drummers from Washington, D.C. that played with Shirley before me was on that record. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. But were you thinking about that record? You were just yeah. naming so specific times. I was right. wondering, okay, which records is he thinking about? <laughs> well, you know everything. You you're abnormal in that uh, respect. <laughs> well, let, well, let's not say abnormal. Say advanced in that mm. respect. You know. Oh man. Mm. No man. So that band. So anyway, we played a. We played. Uh, you know, Herbie has such command of. All these, like the on the the actual thing, Sleeping Giant. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, there's a point in that part where they, they go into I, I forget five or seven. You know, don't don't yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me think. Maybe it's just three. Maybe it's just three. It's something odd. Let's say yeah, it's something yeah. odd. <laughs> yeah. And and they stay in there for a long time. Yeah. But I mean, I didn't realize that's what they were going to do. I don't know how it, you know, Buster might have 
done it. Mm. Yeah. And and Herbie's that kind of guy. I guess Miles told him that if somebody does something, he just does it too. Mm -hmm. and, and and has enough experience to know what to do with it. Mm. So oh, I mean, yeah. that, uh, tune like Sleeping Giant. I remember we played that one night for about two hours. You know, because you had the different soloist. Yeah, different sections. Yeah, yep. yeah. So each section gets longer and longer and longer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Wow. <clears throat> and then, I mean, I mean, there's a point where it seems like Miles must have dug what M1 Dishi was doing. Uh, because half of the band ends up in on the corner. I tell you that that Miles came to hear the uh, M1 DC band. And you didn't, but oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, well, anyway, he he came to hear the band at the Vanguard, and and evidently he had been there a couple of nights before. In other words, he'd come three or four nights in a row. Yeah, and uh, so he was sitting at the Vanguard right on the by the drums. I didn't see him, you know, because we were playing so hard and, you know, like a rock band, we were really playing hard and loud. And um, so I had perspiration in my eyes. So I, I, I went off the stand, you know, just felt my way to the seat to sit yeah. down so I could wipe my eyes. Yeah. And so he was sitting there. So, <laughs> and uh, You were ending up in his lap? Almost, <laughs> you know, and of course it was, that was scary. Yeah, well, I mean, he was already familiar with the band. Uh, I mean, uh, Benny had uh, had already was, done Bitches Brew. Bitches Brew, yeah. Right, and, uh, you know, and Buster seemed to be very familiar with some of that material, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, he had been playing with Miles in, in, in the 60s, I think. Oh, right, right, right. Subbing right. for Ron, right? Right, yeah. right, right. So, yeah, we were... Still, it was a surprise that he that he, that he he was interested in me, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the things that he... And the things that he was interested in and the things that he could... Uh, could teach you know the information he could impart right you know i mean he just did it i mean but i think because he was such a great he was a great teacher because he was a great student i think yeah that makes sense yeah i mean man, you seem he, like a, you seem like a great student as well billy you know it seems like you're checking out all the young guys all the time and you it seems like you're checking out the the older, the elders, mm -hmm. also still, you're still searching. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know there was anybody. I thought there was everybody did that. <laughs> <laughs> what else are you going to do? I mean, how are you going to, mm -hmm. I mean, as, um, as an artist, as, I mean, as a, you, you need, you know, it's just so much to learn. Mm. And then on the other hand, you know, you got to make a living too, you know, <laughs> you have to survive. Sure. So you have to be, when you, you see that, uh, you see the music evolve, 
you you have to evolve. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, was wondering about another record actually, uh, which is one of my favorite records. This one. Oh. How did you know about that? <laughs> well, I think. Um, well, I, I grew up listening to to In a Silent Way and and Mahavishnu and these kind of you know, Herbie, uh, Chick, Miles. My father is uh, and my my mother were big fans. Are big fans of the, of this music. So, uh, my father used to hit me to this record as a as a kid. So, you know, uh, you know, um, I forget where we were at some concert. But the guy that brought that photo brought mm. it to me first. I mean, he, I, I was the first one in the band that he saw. And he said, I, I brought this. It was this big, too. It was like, wow. I said, I, I, said, I, I want to I bring this to you guys. Yeah. So I said, OK, come on. I, I yeah. brought it to Herbie. And he, he, he evidently he liked it. So he put it on. It's a great cover. Yeah. Well, so I, I, I've been growing up with this music, and uh, then when I came to Cologne to study with a great teacher, my my great teacher, Hubert Nuss, he, uh, I was telling him about, you know, Herbie is my guy, I'm trying to check out everything that I can from from Herbie, you know, and this is what I know, and and he's like, yeah, do you know this record, Zavino? <laughs> of course, I knew Zavino, you know, because my parents loved Weather Report and Miles and Debussy, but... Um, I didn't know this record, so I checked it out, and I was—I uh, think he, the first thing he showed me was in a silent way. He's like, "Yeah, that's that's the version of in a silent right, way, right, you know. Right, yeah, that's yeah. the version you should check out, you know." But yeah, any any memories from that from that recording and how it came about uh, and and what the process was, I'm I'm really curious. Well, first of all, I wasn't the only drummer on there. I know, yeah. Again, uh, so. I, I don't know how exactly it went down, but um, but I, I had another gig. You know, this is like the Shirley Horn thing again. I, I had a, a another gig, and I had uh, I had to go out of the house to the garage. And my, the car was in the garage in the back, and uh, I um, I had to lock the door. I had to lock two doors. You know, you go out of the kitchen lock the door and then from the from the kitchen door to the back door there's an is, is another door because you could go down in the basement so i locked that door went to this door closed it and locked that door on my way to the car to go to the gig with marion mcpartland right so just as i locked the door the second door the i can hear the phone ringing Right, so I was thinking, oh man, I'm already running late. Uh, you know, it's it's probably not for me anyway. So, so now I walk halfway to the garage, and I can still hear the phone ringing. It's still ringing, you know. So somehow I turn back around, unlock the door. His phone's still ringing. Then unlock the next door. Yeah, and I answer the phone. And it's Zavano. And he, and he says, Billy, I said, yeah. He said, you know, it's Joe, man. Um, and uh, and of course, you know, he talks like that, you know, the accent. And he said, man, can you get here right away? 
you know, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Where, where? Well, we're at the, we're at the recording studio and, uh, it's so-and-so-and-so and Atlantic Records, boom, boom, boom. All right. Uh, I'll get there as soon as I can. Now, um, that means I got to go get Talk another. Talk to Marion. I got to go. I got to get another drum set first. Mm -hmm. And they're already at the studio. Mm. You know, and I got to get somebody to cover for me on Marion's gig. So somehow I pull all that together, mm. get the drums in the car. And I'm living in New Jersey. I'm not living in New York. I'm, mm. I'm living in New Jersey. Now I got to go. So it's the whole thing takes about an hour. You know, get a drummer. Get a... So I get there, lug my drums up this, you know, this thing, set them up, you know, and now I'm perspiring like, you know, <laughs> like, like water, you know. Like, and I said, man, okay, okay, Joe, what, what do you want me to do? And he says, do only what you have to do. Ah, that's great. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and it turned out, I mean, at least we all felt that that silent way was very special. It seemed very, mm -hmm. very spiritual in that, me, uh, yeah. that, that time. And I don't even know if it came across on the record or not, but I know we all felt this special thing yeah i feel it too i wasn't there obviously but um, <laughs> you know that's all we have the record so yeah but it's nice to know that it that it came across on the recording mm. Yeah. Mm. and that was he that's how i met that's uh that was the first time i played with herbie played with oh yeah him. yeah yeah how did that feel well it was herbie and and Joe and Joe, I mean, it was, it was just a combination of all. It was still all of this kind of wondrous thing, you know, mm. that you were part. It makes you feel like uh, the rest of uh, time or the world didn't exist. I mean, it was this thing was so powerful, so strong mm. that you just that that was it. You know, you just sat there and and. Uh, it's funny how I can say that now. I'm thinking of it now. You could sit there and just kind of enjoy that. You, can, you know, you, wow, wow, this is yeah, this this large W O W. and people, you know, smiling and laughing and congratulating mm. each other. So you know, like, I mean that. That remark of Zavinos, do only what you have to do. Yeah. Is so much easier when you when you're really enjoying is yeah. in that way, you know? You're enjoying everything that's around you and you don't really have to play because you're already you're already yeah. enjoying it and then you have a feeling and then you follow that feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, but it's almost like he had learned that from somebody like somebody must have told him that at one point mm -hmm. in his, his growing up or whatever. 
Yeah. You know, because it sounds, it sounds like some wisdom that's been passed down. Yeah, it sounds like a timeless thing. Yeah. 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 Totally. <clears throat> yeah. Speaking of uh, uh, continuing to continuing to to learn something, what what is some of the recent stuff you've been checking uh, out or stuff that you've trying to to get under your fingers? Well, I'm, I'm you know I'm I'm getting pretty old now, so I've got some patterns and things that uh, that. I've had for 10, maybe even 20 years that I still haven't gotten together yet, mm. you know, and you know, it has, it has to do with, um, you know, it has to do with a lot of the younger guys, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, some younger drummers that I, I just like, uh, and, and it keeps happening. It's not like, You know, I like this guy, you know, I mean, Marcus Gilmore is old now. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's already 31 or what, 32 or something now. Mm. But I remember when I first met him at the North Sea Jazz Festival, I think he was 16. He was play already playing with VJ. Mm. In fact, he gave me the first VJ record that I had. Oh, yeah. Right. So, anyway, I like his playing. I, I'm trying to think. There's a, a video of a master class of his that I play for my students a lot. So, there's that, and uh, and there's a there's a a video of a, of a recording with Justin Brown, mm. and I and I. Ask Justin about it. It had to be more than five years ago, and I said, uh, "Justin, this this is spectacular. I I really love this." I said, um, uh, "Have you heard Marcus's? Because they're both odd grouping things, you know, yeah, group yeah, yeah. style with odd groupings." He said, "Yeah, you know, that's the same thing that I'm doing." And, you know, it didn't sound like the same thing to me. So, mm. so two things. So, you know, I'll take it to the students and we'll transcribe it and nice. compare it and stuff like that. And so I've got, you know, quite a few of those kinds of things. That, that I would. So if you talk about new, I mean, it's, I've got, got quite a few of those things. Yeah. I can, you know, if I had to stop now for some reason and not look at anything else, I, I'm sure I have enough stuff to go for the rest Work of my on. life. Yeah. Yeah. For the rest of my life. Mm. You know, so it's, you know, it has to do with a lot of the younger cats, except, you know, I found that thing with Max, that thing in 1947 with the, I told you, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, I've turned the students on, you know, so I, I, I'll, I'll play that sometimes, mm. you know, because um, you, it's, it's hard even in my generation 
to realize Max's influence. You know, in other words, I mean, he influenced Art Blakey. He influenced and, Roy Haynes. And Tony. And Philly Joe Jones. Oh, of course, mm -hmm. all of those guys influenced Tony, you know. But, I mean, mm -hmm. Max influenced them. Mm. You know, Art Blakey? You think Art Blakey was older? You think he was older than Max? Well, mm -hmm. he is older than Max, but, uh, but mm. I mean, that just shows you how, how, how advanced he was for that time. Yeah. For this time, really. Mm. You know? Are there some, some Max patterns that you're still working on today at the drums? You know, the the Vitus thing is one. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to demonstrate it? Well, I can't really play it yet, but I can give you a general idea. I, I would love to, to see it. Well, you can always play it on the, you know, on the computer sometime. Sure, but we can't hear you all the time, so... <laughs> perfectly like mm. it was composed for that it sounds composed when yeah <laughs> when i first heard it i couldn't understand how charlie parker could even hear when to come in mm -hmm. and in fact i didn't even think it was max uh, it sounded more like roy haynes that kind of thing sounds more like art blakey or max roach to me I'm right all, yeah all art blakey or, or roy haynes mm. you know. so thank you, know, you. You have to you have to listen to it, man. And, and, yeah, and, yeah. And Bird and Miles, they just come in perfectly. Just like mm, great. How in the world do you hear that? <laughs> so, I mean, of course, you can hear, you know, uh, Art Blakey. A lot of times, you know, you'd be playing a night Tunisia, you think. Thank you, Billy. <laughs> so, and you begin to understand, where, you know, where these things come from. Hmm. You know, there are certain rudiments this stuff comes from, you know. And you say, oh, wow, that's just a this. Like, I asked, um, I asked Max what, what the um, Poco local thing was, right? I mean, I knew the, you know, the sticking and whatever. I thought I knew the sticking. But but he had another name for it. You know, there's a rudiment called a paradiddle, mm -hmm. right? And I said, man, what is this in Pocono? He said, man, it's just an inverted paradiddle, inverted paradiddle. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm sure piano players have things like that they say about this. But but you know what? And then we think about the inverted paradiddle. Then. Uh, then there's a, a a drummer that plays with a group called Tower of Power, and he's got a a book, you know, where he um where he plays some of his pop innovations, but the name of it is the Inverted Paradiddle. <laughs> 
Mm. So you begin to say, oh man, of all the other things, we already know all the other things Max has done. You mean Max has got the invert? I mean, then, you know, Garibaldi is, you know, Tower of Power is playing Max Roach too authentically? Right. Yeah. It's all connected. <laughs> it would seem that way. You know, it, it can't be that simple, but sometimes mm. you just say, you know, you can just, that's what I mean by studying. Right. Like Tony Williams with the, with the Swiss triplet. Mm. You know, how many different ways that's been used. So you think about Ralph Peterson or Jeff Watts uh, taking that Swiss triplet of the innovations that Tony did with that and they've taken it and put it in odd groupings, you right. know, odd time signatures and stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Wow, man. who would think you'd do this with that, you know? Yeah. So I'll do that, you know. You mm -hmm. know, I will have done that. And somebody say, oh, that's Jeff Watts. No, no, that's Tony Williams. No, that's Jeff Watts. No, yeah. that's Ralph Peterson. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, so many, so many entry points to access the same right, right. thing. And it sounds different and it, it works different. It's, and it's been used on different compositions and, mm -hmm. you know. Sure. Yeah, it's done, you know, it's, it's, it's done well. I mean, and to the point where, uh, for me, you'll have different reasons for using it. In other words, a certain sound will uh, uh, suggest using that. Mm. Right. I mean, the more ways you have of looking at one thing, it will uh, come to you in different moments then. Yeah. Because you don't only just know one use for it. Yeah. That's, what I, that's one of the things I tell the students in the exact same words you just said. And I'll say it's... it's, it's not how many things you know, but how many ways you can play one thing. Mm, yeah. yeah, totally. So in other words, like you have, you know, it's one thing, you know, say, well, that fits with this, but, but it, it fits with the general motif, but maybe this pattern, you can't play it slow enough or you can't play it fast enough. So let's take this pattern and play it this, you know. Yeah. Turn it around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it, but, Inverted. You know, but it but then it has to be clear though. I mean it has to be I mean <laughs> you can't you know And it can only be clear if you really know it. Yes. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Billy, I'm I'm curious what you expect or what you're looking for in your fellow musicians. What does somebody have must have? For you to want to play with somebody well come on I, you know um i'm still learning you know so uh i mean there's there's things i like in music i i, I like um lyrical lyricism uh rhapsodic kind of, mm -hmm. you know I, I have a tendency towards that so i like people that uh like that. Uh, I remember a record I did of mine, I can't think of the 
what's the name of it? Oh, I think it's Oceans of Time. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Chris Potter's is yeah. taking a solo. And for some reason, we did three takes of it. And Chris Potter's solo, you know, as far as saxophone players are concerned, was, um, you know, he played three immaculate souls and you know you know amazing souls right and so you know when i had to choose one i chose what moved me the most was the um the most melodic most lyrical right. but when i played some of those for you know from other saxophone players you know because it's chris potter you know so uh they said man but why did you choose that one why did you choose this one then another yeah. guy, but why didn't you choose this one? Mm. No, that's that's the one for me. You know, that's one for me. And uh, I remember, um, um, uh, I had this record. Uh, you know, I had Eddie Henderson playing trumpet on the record. I mean, I flew him in from California of all the trumpet plays he had in New York because I like the fact that he plays so melodically, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, so anyway, that's what I like in, in a lot of musicians. Um, like, you know, we just lost Gary Peacock mm -hmm. and, and, and I was going to call him. I didn't, I didn't even know he was sick. But I wanted to call him because I had just discovered one of his compositions that I couldn't stop thinking about. Which one? It's a tune called Gardenia. Gardenia. Yes. Oh, which record is this? Well, I heard uh, I heard it by somebody else, but I heard it's on a record that Peter Erskine plays drums on. Oh, with Gabarik and uh, I think it's with Jan Gabarik. It might it? be. It might yeah. be. Mm. Yeah, because I was just talking to um, Mark Copeland. I think he said that's one of them. But the, what, the record I heard it on was an Andy Laverne record. Mm -hmm. And right. uh, I just couldn't. I'm still thinking about it. Mm. Nice. I, I'll, I'll check it out. Okay, yeah, maybe we can play it. You know? Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> and I mean, I know some Gary Peacock tunes, but this one really moved me. Mm. You know, so I have a choice. You know, you know, and then I've got all these records. You know, you know, Clifford Brown with strings. Uh, yeah. Uh, Coltrane ballads. Uh, yeah. Uh, Billy Holiday, Lady in Satin. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then okay, uh, uh, Dexter Gordon with the strings that he did with uh, the the, um, the, the uh, Danish trumpet player arranger. Uh, oh, uh, Danish trumpet player arranger that led the led the radio band for a while. Uh, was it the, you know, the one that plays like Miles, he did a thing 
Oh, Palamikabog. Yeah, but he did oh. a, a string arrangement, a string arrange, a string CD with, for Dexter Gordon. Oh, I don't, I don't know that one. I'll check it out. Great. Yeah. With the, is it with Dexter or was it yeah, for Dexter? It, with. Oh, it, great. Yeah. So it's an So that's a later project, like from the eighties or something or seventies. I guess. Yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. I check that out. Wow. Yeah. You know, so you. So anyway, so I like guys that play like that. That's why I like Mark Turner. Hmm. Yeah. That's like why I like Coltrane. Hmm. You know. I, 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 everything Coltrane played to me sounded like a ballad. Everything. Even the later stuff. Yeah. yeah, particularly the later stuff. Mm. You know, I was just learning uh, expression. The, the song. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> Man, and I, I was learning and, and then he's kind of, he's improvising mm -hmm. and he's playing all this stuff. But to me, it felt like, felt like a hug, you know? You know, woo. So I like guys that play like that. Yeah. You know. So I just uh, played a gig with George Cables last weekend, and he was playing this. You know, I, I played with McCoy. I played with McCoy Tyner for you know a couple of years, mm -hmm. and uh, and they were playing. And George chose this one tune called. Uh, you taught my heart to sing. To sing, yeah. You know, I mean, it doesn't sound like a McCoy Tyner tune, really, but, but you know, I'm still yeah. thinking about it. It's soulful, soulful, yeah. 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 Mm. So, uh, I, I like, like, um, like I, I like Ben Street. <laughs> you know, you know, I, although. Eddie Gomez played with played with Bill, so a lot of his playing will have those kind of rhapsodic motifs. Mm. Now I don't know if he always played that way because he is Spanish. You know the Spanish people have that romantic uh, way mm -hmm. of looking at stuff, but some of it I think he might have gotten from Bill. So mm. I like him. You know Buster. Mm. Yeah. Can you describe your relationship? I mean, a musical relationship with Buster? Well, what makes it work for you? Well, I'm, I'm thinking which way, where to start, you know. Um, first of all, he's, I've known him for quite a while. Um, we met on Betty Carter's gig, hmm. right? So, and he, he's a singer's bass player as far as I'm concerned. He's a singer's hmm. bass player like I'm a singer's drummer. Nancy Wilson? Yeah. Well, yeah. it was Sarah Vaughn before Nancy. Oh, right, yeah. In fact, we, um, we played in Detroit with Betty Carter. Betty Carter took the band to Birdland in New York but I couldn't do that because I had to go back and rejoin Shirley in Washington, D.C. And then uh, Sarah Vaughn took whoever was in uh, Betty's band to California. And then uh, Nancy took Buster from Sarah at 
at uh, in California, but not until Busta had already, um, uh, you know, made that uh, live recording with Sarah in in Copenhagen at Tivoli. Mm -hmm. You know, so Busta, I remember he came to me one time. He said, "Man, you know, I got to get back to New York. I want to, you know, I want to play some music." And uh, I said, "Well, Busta, you know, you know, you're making." You're making really good, great money with uh, Nancy Wilson, you know. And the guys in guys in New York are are really playing, man. You know, they're really pushing the envelope. And he's never let me forget that. Almost every time we talk, he said, "Man, you know, you know, you, you didn't think I could cut it." And I... <laughs> yeah, you know. And of course, you know, as soon as he came back to New York, everybody just. So one thing about Buster, uh, for me, I'll give you, okay, I'll put it this way. Uh, I was in Japan with one of my friends driving around as crowded as those streets are, as heavy as the traffic is. We're riding around listening to the Hank Jones great jazz trio, right? You know, mm. all of those records, you know, listen to Tony, basically, Tony and, and Ron and Hank. Ron, yeah. And so we get somewhere and we're turning the corner. And I said, wow, listen to what Ron's doing here, man. I mean, this is, boy, this is really swinging. This is really swinging. He said, man, it's not Ron. He said, that's Buster. Woo. <laughs> so that's what I like about Buster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you hear it on, yeah, and you hear it uh, with Shirley on that record. Yeah, I mean, totally. look at those choice of notes, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. Buster's father was a was a great bass player, but his father was also a better than average drummer, and so Buster's rhythms without the notes really responds to the cymbal beat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I like, you know, so basically the guys I liked or I felt most comfortable with of, of in those days, now I'm, you know, I'm playing catch up, you know, Wh whoever I get a chance to play with, you know, I, I don't pick and choose anymore, you mm. know, but, it was basically Cecil McBee, Buster Williams, George Moraz, and Eddie Gomez. Mm. I shouldn't say that because now whoever sees this, he will say, well, what about? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, let's talk about Ben Street. So when you guys first started playing, because I love the, uh, the, the, <laughs> I wanted to say hookup, but almost I said hiccup. Yeah, which is which isn't true at all. The hookup yeah. between uh, you and and Ben, um, but I talked to Ben about this because he he's such a big fan of Buster. Oh, right? I I don't know him like that. Okay, yeah, but uh, yeah, he he sounds different to me yeah. as well. But uh, he loves Buster. Oh. But I was wondering, like, getting to know Ben and and how you guys hooked up and how you guys, yeah, how did you? find your yourselves together well it, for me it was almost immediate 
because um, uh, Ben likes multi-directional playing. I like multi-directional playing. You know, I I like that, and I and I never get enough chances to do it to perfect it better. But that's that's really um, my ambition to be better at that. You know, I'm more of a Milford Graves, Andrew Surreal, mm. uh, you know, those guys. Mm. Uh, Sonny Murray, mm. you know, you know, I, I, for me, that's really the most advanced way of playing the drums. Uh, mm. uh, Rashid, you know, and, and I think it has a it has a vocabulary that can be studied. It's not just... No, no, sure, yeah. You know, so... Uh, but Ben seems to like that, too. On the other hand, he really has studied the Afro-Caribbean vocabulary, besides just the fact that he's been with Danilo for mm. about 20 years, you know? Mm. And, you know, just thinking about that, just Danilo, the kind of musician Danilo is. I mean, he's this his uh, Afro-Caribbean historian that's yeah. also playing with Wayne Shorter, you know. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and so and Ben has, you know, those those are some very sophisticated rhythms. And given him the fact that he likes multidirectional, I just heard a gig he did with Andrew Surreal with yeah. David Varellas and Bill Frizzell. Yeah. Did you hear that? Man, I missed it. I missed it. Oh, I yeah. wanted to hear it, but I missed it. Mm -hmm. And then he did one with Andrew a couple of weeks before that with Joe Lovano, just a trio. Yeah. Okay, so that's just what he likes to do or who, who yeah. likes him. But uh, he's got another thing that I like that reminds me more of, say, somebody like Jimmy Garrison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. And, and if we just want to talk about playing 4-4, four, four, he can really do that, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so right now, I think Ben is, is my favorite. Mm. Great. Um, Multi-directional playing. I have to think about this record as well. Uh-oh, whoops. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. It has you and also Alphonse Bouzon on drums. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Muzan had, was, well, that's another thing. Uh, I think uh, Muzan is one of the the guys that was around when the straight ace were being, you know, as it, as it begins to evolve more, mm. or, or you, what you could call it, fusion or whatever, mm. or, or which is, I think, Tony Williams' innovation is that he innovated fusion drumming. Yeah. Or the word he used, jazz rock drumming. 
mm-hmm. you know. So, and so it was Tony and Jack, and maybe me a little bit, and uh, mm-hmm. and Billy Cobham, and mm-hmm. but uh, Alphonse comes as the next wave of that, mm-hmm. you know. So he's very innovative too for me. Yeah, you know. Do you have any? Uh... Oh, go okay. ahead. Well, I'm saying, in fact, uh, evidently, one of the reasons that the two of us were on that record is that they were choosing somebody for the weather report. Oh, that was kind of a tryout thing in a way, evidently. disguised as as a record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and because I, you know, because I didn't think about it, but I'd already played with Zalvano. Now I was playing with Wayne. And so it looks like I was being considered. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, uh, I talked to Reggie Workman, you know, a year or so after that, and he, he had been talking to Wayne. And uh, and uh, and he said that uh, that Wayne was, you know, very close to Herbie, but very close to McCoy too. And he said, and according to Reggie Workman, he said both of them told Wayne that I that I was going to join their band. Mm. That you know I was going to play with, you know. And so he said, you know, according to to uh, Reggie, Wayne just said, well, if he's got all, you know, let him you know deal with that, you know. Yeah, I see. That's interesting. So, But of course, the the weather report would have been, you know, I mean, I I learned my little Brazilian stuff, and I had my little pop stuff, and uh, I I probably could have done okay in there. Sure, yeah, it's, uh, it's actually yeah, it's inspiring to think about these. I don't know. Do you sometimes do that? Imagine somebody else in place of somebody else in the classic oh. recording or a classic yeah, band. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I do that. I do that quite a lot, and and uh, sometimes I can hear actual music because I know the record so well, and the, the other person maybe. Right. Exactly. I can hear actual music in my head, but. Um... Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> How was Wayne as a as a band leader? In that? Do you remember well, that session? He, you know, you know how Wayne is, or how Wayne is supposed to be. I wouldn't be the only one to tell you that he might be a little eccentric, mm-hmm. you know. So I think um, at first he called me for some rehearsals because he was going to have a quartet with a uh, a Canadian guitar player whose name, of course, now I can't think of. But he was one of the first guitar players to uh, be playing more like McCoy Tyner kind of chords and mm. you know, those kind of, you know, we got a bunch of those kind of guitar players today, but this was the first one. Sonny Fortune was his name. Sonny Fortune. Well, Sonny Fortune, isn't that also a saxophone player? That's, that's, oh, oh, I'm not Sonny Fortune. Sonny Fortune is one of my best friends. Um, uh, something Fortune. Uh, Sunny Greenwich, Sunny ah, okay. Greenwich, Sunny Greenwich. Mm. <laughs> Greenwich, 
So Sonny Greenwich, Cecil McBee, and myself. That was mm. going to be the Wayne Shorter Quartet. Mm. And then he, you know, maybe a month or so later, he called me for the recording. And uh, who's the bass player on that? It's Cecil McBee. Oh, yeah. So that was, yeah, that was. And the guitar player is Gene Bertoncini. Yeah. So I guess that's what it's it is. It's a different thing, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what it ended up being. Huh. With an extra drummer or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, well, so. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, man, it's... Yeah, you know, I don't... It's funny, I never think about that stuff. If you hadn't asked me, I wouldn't... You know, it's interesting that I even remember that, you know. Because mm -hmm. I never think about it. I mean, I mm. think about Wayne, but not with me. <laughs> mm. You know, yeah, Wayne. Is... Yeah. And of all, of course, the the you know the band that he has now is the band I would have liked to have played in. You know, <laughs> with Danilo and 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 yeah. yeah, that's a mind game. That's a that's a band to imagine. Wow. <laughs> You with those guys, that's incredible. When was the last time you played with Wayne? Then. Uh, in, that recording? Yeah. Mm. And you know, I also, the only other guy I haven't played with that I would have liked to have played with is um, Keith. Mm. Right. You never crossed paths? Oh, we crossed paths. For some reason, uh, uh, Jack would bring Keith around to hear me. I don't know if Jack was trying to get out of the band or whatever, but he, he brought Keith around to hear me a, a couple of times. Mm -hmm. you know. It's another mind game. Yeah. The Keith Jarrett trio with Billy Hart. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Maybe it'll happen someday. Who knows? Well, somehow whatever has happened has been not too bad. Yeah, absolutely. I got a chance to play with you. That's oh man. I, I think that was really important for me. Oh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, but uh, it's, it's I'll say true. the same about you, man. It's, uh, it was an incredible experience to to hear your sound up close, to hang with you, and to feel what what it feels like if you hit a hit anything. Um, that that energy also. I mean, I felt like you start at a place of of energy and intensity, and that doesn't have to do anything with a lot of notes or hitting something hard or whatever. It's just an energy. Even if you don't play, that's a different place where others. I mean, maybe never get to, but also when they get to it, that's, that takes a long time for them in a, in a song and you start, you start or in a concert or in a, in a lifetime, you start, that's where you start. And I've, I was blown away and I, I played from, from what I played, I played totally different. You made me play different from, I don't know, you unlocked things in, in me uh, and, and um, yeah, man, I, I'll never forget it.
I'll never forget. Well, I, was funny. I, I was sort of thinking you as the leader of, 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 <laughs> of that kind of feeling. You know, I really, you know, I really enjoyed it. Mm. You know, because especially you know, I would, I wouldn't have expected that uh, from uh, from Christoph's. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting what I heard. You know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I hope we get another chance. I, I think tomorrow would have been another gig for us right. in the book. We yeah. would have played in in Vienna, I think. Oh, so oh. let's see. Let's see when we get another chance, even to to hang out. But this has been so great to talk to you, man. And thanks for making the time. Well, I look forward to it, man. Yeah, me too. And uh, yeah, thanks for for sharing your your stories and your wisdom. Thank you for your interest. Sure. <laughs> sure, man. All right. Okay, man. Let's keep in touch and speak soon. Okay. Okay, of course. And say okay. hello to everybody for me. You know, I I'm will. Great playing your drama too. Right? Yeah, I, I will. I will. I will. All right. Hey. See you. Take later. care, man. <laughs>